The so-called discovery of the world by European navigators in the 15th century is the event that defines the beginning of the historical process known as colonialism. The system is marked by the exploitation of labor and expropriation of land. Territories, specifically Africa and the Americas, witness their peoples be systematically dominated, killed or enslaved, their lands dispossessed, their culture and knowledge erased and replaced with Eurocentric ideals. Here are but two examples. The Diné, or Navajo Nation, among many other native nations, are indigenous to Turtle Island, or what is now called North America, specifically the Four Corners region of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. By the 19th century, Europeans and European-American settlers had launched a series of ethnic cleansing and attacks against Navajos to dispossess and remove them from their land. The most infamous part of this history is known as the Long Walk of 1864, when the U.S. government and military forced Navajos on a death march to barren reservation land at Fort Sumner. Repercussions from this violence still exist today and can be seen in the COVID-19 impact and response. Zimbabwe is located in southern Africa and has many rich cultures with more than 14 million people who speak more than 16 languages, as well as land that is rich in gold, platinum, chromium, and other mineral resources. Numerous kingdoms existed in this area, including the Mutapa, Rosvi, and Matebele, all prior to colonial encounters in the 1800s. During this period, the British dominated indigenous peoples and passed laws like the Land Apportionment Act in the 1930s, ultimately displacing the black majority from fertile land to arid reserves. In urban areas, the townships designated for black people had poor access to basic services and were densely populated. Today, this disenfranchisement continues and has influenced the risk of getting COVID-19, its management, and the impact on the people of Zimbabwe. Even though colonialism is often thought to be a time period in history, somewhere long ago, off in the past, it actually never ended, but instead reshaped itself to achieve similar goals throughout time. These modern colonial structures intertwine international geopolitical relations and are reflected throughout different spheres of societies like education, security and health. In fact, the current COVID-19 crisis across countries is also shaped by colonialism. In today's episode, we'll discuss these colonial structures and how they are reflected in the impact and response of COVID-19 in these two contexts. Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. The show is sponsored by AC4 
the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hi, listeners. Welcome. I'm Mari Casalato. I'm the producer behind Conversations from the Leading Edge, and I'll be hosting the episode today. I'm really excited to announce that this is the first uh, episode on a special series we're producing about the intersections of the pandemic of COVID-19 and the legacy of coloniality. So, first of all, I'd like to introduce our partner in this series. She will be my co-host also, Zahaira Meknet. So Zahaira is a global public health practitioner and humanitarian researcher. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda. And she brings to the conversation 14 years of professional experience in East Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, and the Americas. Zahaira, welcome. Thank you for joining us and for all your effort in putting together this series with us. So before we start, I just would like you to say hello and share uh, why you think this conversation is important at this time. Mari, thank you so much um, for that introduction and also to you and AC4 for the partnership in creating this conversation on COVID-19 and colonialism. I think to answer your question about why this conversation at this point in time, there are sort of three reasons that motivated me. One is that we recognize there are grave inequities in who gets this virus and who doesn't, and who dies from this virus and who doesn't. And there's a lot of work looking at why that is, right? And they're studying racism and its relationship to this virus and the outcomes in the U.S. People are studying poverty in other settings and its relationship to these health outcomes. And we have a moment here to talk about colonialism in its current form, in its modern form, and how it explains the differences and the inequities in the health outcomes about who gets this disease and who doesn't, who lives and who dies. And so I'm excited that we get to prioritize this conversation about colonialism in modern times and its effect on health outcomes across the globe. The second reason I wanted to have this conversation, I think is a little bit more positive. Um, and it's really that there is great ingenuity, brilliance, innovation, expertise about how to respond to outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics across the world. And that expertise exists in places that we often don't look. It exists in low and middle income environments and countries. And we are often looking to high income countries like the US and the UK. And as we can see in this moment, these two countries have quite frankly botched their responses to the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting in thousands and thousands of deaths. And so we have a moment here to flip the colonial narrative and recognize that expertise in this area, scientific innovation, exists in low and middle income countries across the world. And specifically, we're going to get to highlight you know, places in um, Africa, in South Asia, and we have an opportunity to show that that's where the expertise is in response to pandemics, and that's where we need to be learning from. The third reason I really wanted to highlight this is that, you know, personally, I sit in the field of global health, public health, humanitarian response. And this is a field of people who care a great deal about health inequities, who care a great deal about improving health outcomes. And yet, it's a field that is racist, that is based in colonial structures, that is hierarchical, um, that often focuses on the health of poor people in low and middle income settings, but is controlled by wealthy people in high income countries. And so we have a moment to hold up a mirror and dismantle colonialism in its current form in 2020. And so I'm delighted that 
we're having this conversation today. Yeah, me too. I mean, this is a very complex uh, topic and we don't have a way to cover all the complexity that um, it entails, but we'll try to cover three main aspects of it. In the first episode that we're doing today, we'll discuss what coloniality is and how it impacts COVID-19 preparedness and response, especially in the context of Zimbabwe and the Navajo Nation. And then for the second episode, we'll be discussing the concept of localizing health responses and how coloniality influences what initiatives are funded, where funding flows, who plays a leadership role, and how the work actually gets done. That has to do with a lot with what you've been saying. And for the third and final episode, we'll discuss uh, narratives and how there are uh, colonial perspective to narratives when we're talking about the pandemic in, in diverse countries. And I think there's a lot to do with the issues that you pointed out about expertise and where the expertise is and things like that. So we'll be covering these three more general points throughout our episodes. I hope you all enjoy listening to this. Excellent. I'm so excited to introduce our guests for today. Um, today's episode, COVID and colonialism, when past is present, is really giving us an opportunity to begin tackling this conversation. And we're talking with Dr. Tinashe Goronga, who is a physician from Zimbabwe and co-founder of the Center for Health Equity, as well as the head of the global campaign against racism's Zimbabwe chapter. He also just recently got his master's in public health, and so we're excited to have him today. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Farina King, and Farina is a citizen of the Navajo Nation and an assistant professor of history, as well as an affiliated faculty of Cherokee and Indigenous Studies at Northeastern State University. Um, Farina is also the author of The Earth Memory Compass, DNA Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century. So we are delighted to have this group. Um, welcome, Tina Shea and Farina. It is great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. So maybe we should just jump right in. The first question I think we had for you, um, we really were hoping that you could tell us a bit about who you are, you know, where you're from, and start to help us have a conversation by giving us a brief overview of what's happening with COVID-19 in the Navajo Nation and in the Republic of Zimbabwe. I guess so... Uh, my name is Tinashe Kuranga, as mentioned, and I'm from, from Zimbabwe. That's where I, I started for my for my medical degree. And I have about three years of experience uh, working in a clinical setting. And I, part of it, I worked in a rural district hospital in one of the poorest provinces in the in the country. So Zimbabwe is still at this at its early stages of the of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. It hasn't reached its peak yet. Um, but the, the cases have been rising, and um, as of as of this week, we have reached the 700 mark. I think the last time I checked, there were about 734 confirmed cases, and and only nine deaths so far. And most of the cases that have been recorded have been, particularly in the last week, have been have been cases in the in the quarantine caps and people have been the returning citizens back to the country though there's also been an increase in the number of the community community acquired cases so it's it's still so the the epidemic compared to a lot of other countries on the globe is still in its early stages at the moment thank you so very much farina thank you for having me uh yat e She Farina King Yenishe, Bilagana Nishle, Dokia Ani Bashishin, Bilagana Dashache, Dosinijani Dashanale, Akot Ego Atsa Nishle, 
Um, this is an important way of how we as Dene, the people as we call ourselves um, of Navajo Nation, we introduce ourselves by our clans, our um, kinship Dene. And it's important for us to do that because that um, situates where we're coming from. It helps us to recognize our relatives and the obligations we hold to each other. It's sharing our family history. That comes even before your name in traditional ways. So I, I explained that I am matrilineally through my mother's line. Um, I descend from white European American settlers and my father, we say we are born for our father's people and I'm born for the towering house clan and the black streaked woods people clan of Navajo Nation. And your question of uh, COVID-19, a general overview of how it's been affecting my nation is actually very deeply, very personally, um, there's headlines of ravaging Navajo Nation, um, tragedy, devastation. And personally, I have felt this. You know, I felt this uh, suffering through my own family being on the front lines that we are an epicenter of this catastrophe. And when people think this isn't real, it's so real that this is not something we're just theorizing about. It is every day lives are being threatened, our people, our existence that has already been bombarded as we're going to talk about in this conversation about the impacts of colonialism. We are bombarded by series of attacks and have for decades, even centuries. Um, that this is a very, another wave of that, another very serious danger to our people. Just yesterday, statistics, right, are 386 deaths on, uh, in Navajo Nation. That's our ancestral lands, but also what we call reservation um, through treaty, the Treaty of 1868 set for Navajo Nation and protected, supposed to be. Um, and that there are over 8,000 cases and the concern is still rising, right? So we already have had um, a surpassing a 3.4% infection rate. Um, and that's just trying to measure what's happening in Navajo Nation. I mean, there's over 300,000 Navajos who are uh, regarded as citizens, what we say enrolled with Navajo Nation. Uh, about 175,000 Navajos live um, in the reservation in Navajo Nation. And, and keep in mind, you know, there's diaspora. I'm a part of that where I've lived away from Navajo Nation, even though I was born there. Um, it is dire and, and there's constant uh, regular lockdowns, whether you go to the grocery store, having your temperature taken, all these kind of precautions, what we're trying to do to, to fight this, to protect our people, um, all our people who every life is so precious and important. And thank you for having me.
Thank you, Farina, for, for your words. One thing that you say is really strikes me that is like, this is not theoretical. This is the practical thing going on. So since our topic is uh, coloniality, what do you mean when you say colonialism, when you discuss colonialism in each of your settings? So in the development of the pandemic in Zimbabwe right now, but also in this dire situation in the Navajo Nation that you just described. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I'll go ahead and talk about that. My people have been poisoned, drained because of colonialism, our water taken, the inaccessibility to water, a food desert. When our ancestral ways, we had a livelihood and then there was invasion. And I think uh, that's where, you know, Patrick Wolf's work of recognizing Colonialism, not as an event that happened in the past, but it's this process and it's certainly ongoing um, through the even just the basic questions of who gets to dis, who gets to control these basic human needs of water, food, access to health care, who controls that and who are marginalized and on the front lines of um, not for you, you know, life being valued even. Lately, I've been thinking about Dene oral tradition and how important that is in conceptualizing who we are and where we come from. And as a historian, you know, I'm often asking that questions, uh, those questions of who came before us. And an important oral tradition is one of our, our twin heroes, one of our revered Dene woman who is changing woman. Um, she had two twin sons and there were monsters that plagued the earth and they were destroying, you know, the livelihoods and ability of people to have happiness, you know, to be happy. And the twin heroes had to pursue a journey to go and defeat these monsters. And they did so through help, courage. They were not perfect. You know, they made mistakes along the way. But the Naye, the monsters, you know, they were able to destroy many of them. But it said that they left several of them. Some of those include laziness. They include greed. They include all these kind of vices that we can trace throughout time. And for Dene today, we, we see colonialism as uh, one of these mothers of the monsters. You know, it, for me, it's a vampire. That's the easiest way to kind of explain it, right? What's a vampire? It's uh, a being, a monster that is a parasite. It lives off of other people. It can't survive without sucking the life, the lifeblood of another people at the expense of that other life. You know, it takes of that other place. And that's a monster, you know, one that the twin heroes faced and that we continue to face today. And COVID-19 is like a, it, it's so monstr monstrous and terrible because it's being fed by that colonialism. You know, um, it feeds off of people who have underlying health issues, especially among our people that already diabetes, um, cancer, were epidemic among our people. And then this pandemic is hitting really hard. I know for some historians, I've been told, oh, colonialism, that's a trend. You know, this is, this is a scholarly trend of how people are seeing this. That in the United States, you have to understand there's a lot of denial. You know, they, they just can't face that for themselves, but there's denial of 
um, colonialism and its impacts, thinking that the United States, the United States through the American Revolution, we were freed from colonialism. We freed ourselves from England. That, that's how people see it. And even historians are reinforcing that with the narratives that they say. But um, no, it is real. My, my family, our experiences of my ancestors surviving the long walk because they were basically made to be foreigners on their own land, told their existence, their very existence was a challenge to this developing empire of the United States and move aside or die. But basically, that was a death sentence too. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, Tinashe, can you see what uh, Farina is discussing in your context as well? Do you see it in the same way? Yes, absolutely. Actually, when Farina talked about the vampire, the, the whole idea of it sucking the life out of the whole system and the whole idea of it being away from the from from central communities to, to individuals, that's that's one of the key features that you find in different contexts and how it's ongoing. Because if you look at historically from the from from the conquest of Africa in course when they had the, the Berlin conference uh, to uh, to partition countries so you'd find that what they did what they were what they were looking for is to have authority over 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 countries so that they they have authority over they have economic dominance they have religious dominance they 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 affect the political systems of the affected countries and they influence the religion and culture and the purpose of it all was to protect their own interests, was to extract uh, minerals and wealth from the same countries for their own benefit as, 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 as countries. So, so capitalism, you can see the role of capitalism in the whole thing, whereby they just want to extract, they wanted to extract uh, resources for their own benefit. They built the people in the, in, the, in the communities that they were going into as cheap labor, and they and they, they they came up with laws and regulations that gave them property rights and taking away from property and and ownership from the people involved who are in the ground. That's the, the indigenous communities. And you'd find in countries like um, like Zimbabwe, which was a settler colony, because colonization also they had different methods in different countries. And in Zimbabwe, it was a settler colony. So the, the idea was not only to extract the mineral resources, but they were they wanted to settle in the country. So you'd find that the development trajectory a country like Zimbabwe took uh, from the policies uh, that were put in like the, the the Land Apportionment Act and the various acts that followed, they were the main priority or the main aim was to was to benefit the colonizers on the white that is the white minority over the, the black majority. So development was centralized in the in the major cities where the where the white people stayed and in the communities that they stayed. And the black people were pushed to the poor areas which were termed as reserves. That and the the men were were allowed in the cities as cheap labor. And what they did is they made uh, compounds and uh, places of residence for them so that they could serve as cheap labor. But if you look at, they did invest in the in the social services as much as they did in the community. So you'd find that even up to date, some of the, you still see the clear demarcation where you find the quality, the education, the quality of schools that were built for white only communities versus the schools that were for blacks only communities. The hospitals that were built for the white communities versus the hospitals that were built for all the black community. And they also are, and the superiority of, of, of the English language 
the systems, the economic systems itself, what they did. And when most of the countries got their, their, their independence and through various negotiation forums, what they did is the former colonizers, uh, that is the, the main, the global powers that are still dominating now, for them to continue controlling the same countries, they, they, they evolved into new forms of colonialism, whereby which people term as neocolonialism, where they, 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 where they used capitalism, where they used globalization and conditional aid uh, to bring about change. Um, things like global health, as mentioned earlier by, by Bajar when she was doing the introduction, was they, I mean global health. You see the way the trend, like who is invited at the table for making decisions. They make decisions for Africa, not with African. They, most of the aspects that are involved, if you look at publications and all, they, they've ex- most of the decision making on very form, for, uh, forums, be it economy, be it health, uh, uh, even when you're looking into policies at global level, most of them are made for Africa, not with Africa. And even when you look at the COVID-19 responses around the world, most of the most of the influences have been centralized, even though you might argue that Africa has had so much experiences in, in, de- in dealing with epidemics. But there has been this whole top-down approach uh, which has continued, where they have maintained those power dynamics. So even up to now, colonialism is no longer like as as visible as it was in the past, where there was like there was real time occupation, physical occupation of the countries. But it's now manifesting in the the operation of the of the global power systems. It's not much manifestation manifesting in the operation of the systems that are that are in place in in different countries in the follow which were the former colonies of the of of, of Britain and other European countries we're getting a remarkable history lesson that informs what's happening in the present and so much gratitude to you both for sharing something that I think is both political and personal Farina really one of the things I took away from what you were sharing was about colonialism being about power and control, taking from people and taking from the people that it conquers. And then Tinashe building on that and talking a bit more about settler colonialism and mentioning an example of conditional aid. And I wanted to maybe start to bring the conversation closer to the present. And there are two things that in relationship to what you all talked about, I wanted to share as an example. Um, And so very quickly, you know, Egypt and the UK have a former colonial relationship. And in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, while Egypt was struggling with an ability to provide personal protective equipment for their own clinicians, they were also sending PPE to the UK in the midst of the pandemic. And people were saying, well, why is that happening? And the explanations are all about an old and current colonial relationship between former colonizer and its former colony. And so it's really interesting to think about this idea of taking from the people that you conquered or are conquering. Um, And in relationship to your mentioning conditional aid, there's still this conversation about the International Monetary Fund giving to low and middle income countries, right? Or lending money to low and middle income countries in the midst of COVID or even pre-COVID and having conditions on that that include essentially defunding your healthcare system in order to qualify for the loans that are supposed to help develop your nation. And so countries have, you know, less money for nurses and physicians. They are 
forcing people into early retirement and so on in order to defund their healthcare system and qualify for loans from the International Monetary Fund. And so the examples, as you were describing colonialism and its power and its dominance, those two examples came to mind. And so I'm so grateful for you bringing the history to the present. I would love for us now to transition a bit into talking about how these colonial systems you've described um, impact the current COVID-19 response um, and, you know, essentially everything that's happening around COVID-19 in your home setting. And maybe we can start with Tina Shea. Uh, Zimbabwe, right now, because we haven't started recording a lot of cases, our cases are on the rise. It's difficult to come up with data that I can say, okay, these are the, the issues that we have studied in Zimbabwe uh, that are directly affect, affecting COVID-19. But still, when you look, in, look at the progression of the, of the pandemic in terms of who's affected, and even if you look at the interventions that have been recommended, like um, social distancing, the ones who will be most affected are the ones who will not be able, who do not have the luxury of social distancing. And that has been the, the, the critique by most developing countries because we have the majority of our people relying on informal informal employment. So even some of the lockdown, they will have an impact on the social and, and economic situation. And, and most of our countries like Zimbabwe also adopted the same the same measures without really making them fit into the, the local context. So if you trace back to the historical component where during there were designated uh, communities for black people and white communities, you notice that the communities that are at risk today or the communities that do not have the luxury to solve distance are the communities which were meant for black communities. So we have um, a residential area called Mbari in the capital of Farai. So in this residential area, there are hostels which in the colonial era were designed for, for single black people to stay in. And their families were in the rural native reserves. Now you'd find that because there is no longer that regulation, you'd find that families are staying in those in those neighborhoods. The water and sanitation in those areas is below standard. And if you look at the development model that the country took on, which is centralizing development in the urban areas, because they didn't change much, they just continued on the trajectory, the development framework. The ones who are not being affected the most are the poor communities, because these are the ones who do not have the luxury to, to self-distance, and these are the ones who are staying in the rural communities. And in the rural communities, there was no infrastructure for health. People had to walk long distances to the next rural, rural center. And when the when the government of, of Zimbabwe, when they got independence in 1980, they tried to to solve some of these problems. As you can tell from when they were campaigning for independence, one of the key things, they were fighting for equality and they were labeled communist because most of the principles that they advocated for were against capitalism. They were, the Most of the issues that they advocated for were for inclusive development. So when they won independence, they wanted to fulfill that. So you find that there was a lot, lot of investment in the early 1980s in the health sector in Zimbabwe, in the health and education sector. They built rural healthcare centers, they tried to strengthen the primary health care system in Zimbabwe. From that time on, maternal mortality started dropping and under child mortality, some indicators which were showing that we were moving on a progressive route. But what happened now in the 1990s was IMF came in and if Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe wanted to access loans and some of the credit facilities and some of the conditions which have been mentioned by Zaire, they had to cut down on funding in consumptive sectors of the economy. And the consumptive sectors were health and education, the so-called social sectors. So they cut their spending on health. 
and they started introducing user fees. So this is in the backdrop where you're coming from, you're just coming from a system that was built on the basis of inequity. And when you're trying to solve the problems, some structural measures are imposed that do not solve, that actually worsen the, the inequity. Going forwards, you'll notice that the health sector in Zimbabwe has been struggling. Even, even right now, recently, they for them to access more funds, they had to come up with more structural adjustments and austerity plans. So this resulted in brain drain because there's poor enumeration of healthcare workers. They are living for searching for green approaches. Then you find the health centers are poorly resourced. So they don't have access to protective personal equipment. And this is all made worse again. So it's an interplay of other issues because you'd find on one end, these are things are happening. Then on another end, you'd find the, the global lockdown, which has, which has cut on the supply chains when, you're, when, when they were relied, relying a lot on outside supply of some of the key things. Then you also find in the backdrop, there's also poor governance and corruption. And I think that's one of the key things that I have to highlight because when you have these conversations, most often people would say no, Countries like Zimbabwe cannot complain about colonialism because there is poor governance, because there is corruption, which is true that there is poor governance and corruption. And it's also true that these issues played a, a huge role. But still, it doesn't mean that colonialism has a role. Just, just making worse some of the things that were already existing. The shift in the dynamics is now is the political elite who are taking the place of the former oppressor who had a white face during the during the colonial era. So you now have the black elite that are benefiting from the systems, the same colonial systems that are persisting up to up to today. So now because of all this, when you look at a poor functioning health sector in the background of a poor economy, one of the greatest fear is how that will impact in terms of the response to the COVID-19 epidemic. Because right now, we are currently having strikes. Last week, some nurses were, were protesting at one of the main central hospitals, real central hospitals. They were protesting against the poor working conditions. They were protesting against poor remuneration. And these are the people who are essential and very important to the response to, to COVID-19. Then you go on to talk about some of the, if we re, if we zoom out, there's the issue about um, the sanctions that the country is on. It's another tentacle that you see that some of these global powers are using to still maintain their power and influence on Zimbabwe. We continued with, with dysfunctional power relations with our, which are not promoting inclusive development, but are only promoting the benefit of political elite and also the benefit of the global powers. Tina Shea, thank you so much for sharing um, so much detail about how these colonial systems are impacting COVID-19 in the Zimbabwe response, and particularly highlighting how health systems become weak, right? And making sure that those are that's not accidental, um, that there are a lot of donor level decisions, global level decisions that end up weakening health systems in low and middle income country settings. Thank you so much. Um, Passing it back to Farina, how are these colonial systems impacting the COVID-19 response in the Navajo Nation? Um, a lot of what Tanache said resonates with me um, because, you know, it is interconnected. And when I talk about the land and how this uh, reservation was developed, right, uh, these lines drawn, that also set up this um, colonial relationship that I'll call it because it's that vampirism of border towns that set up around the Navajo Nation and those become the hubs of economy that Navajos have to travel far 
to go to these border towns to get, you know, basic human needs, water even, groceries, their food in, in today's time. And this became uh, heightened as well in intensity with COVID-19 because as you have, you know, this need to travel to the border town, because within the Navajo Nation, there is only, there's under 15 grocery stores, 15 places to go get your groceries. And a, a lot of people, though there is still some farming, not like it was in a sustainable way. It's not sustainable. People are not really living off of, uh, off of their own uh, farming and livelihood. They, it's a food desert. And so with COVID-19, one of the uh, a major catastrophe was Gallup, one of the major hubs near my family. They had a lockdown and they were locking Navajos out. Even some of my elders who need to go there, not just it, keep in mind of this as well. It's not just food. It's also health care. There's only a few facilities. My father told me they might have 10 ventilators on the whole Navajo Nation. And to give you a sense of how large the Navajo Nation is, it's over 17 million acres. Okay, that's the size of, of some countries, a larger than some countries in the world. And they only have a, a few ventilators. So when people get COVID-19, when they contract it, they have to be flown out somewhere far, not even just to these border towns, they take them even to one of these uh, major cities like Phoenix, as far away as Salt Lake City. And there was recently, um, Sonny Dooley wrote a piece in, um, I think it's called The Scientific American, where she said, we were made to be the perfect human for this virus to invade. And what made us this way was colonialism. Thank you. I'd like to bring an example from Brazil uh, that really resonates also what Tinashi brought uh, from the context of Zimbabwe. We see here in Brazil how the colonial structure also is impacting the response in COVID-19. So uh, those uh, who are most affected are from impoverished communities and the majority are black and brown people. And the state is not getting to them. And that's the question. How can we beat this virus? How can we survive? In response to that, black movements around impoverished areas have organized themselves so they can be the response for uh, this lack of the state. For example, in Sao Paulo, there's this uh, organization called Uneafru that usually works with education in those communities. Right now, they, ha they are focusing on, on a response for the COVID-19 crisis. So they are distributing food and, and hygiene materials for families. And they are also offering online training for what they are calling popular health agents. So they are calling people from those communities to go into the website and go through the materials and learn how to monitor the, the disease in their communities, how to uh, prevent it, how to deal with each case, depending on the seriousness of the disease in each case. They are using this to fight back, to find a way to maintain themselves alive. So I wanted to ask you if you know other groups or experiences that are also resisting these colonial structures that you've been describing and organizing themselves against the COVID-19 and the lack of response from uh, the state or other institutions, what are the, the traditional knowledge that surpasses the colonial ties and that um, come forth as a response, like a resistance response to these structural historical situation? 
people have realized uh, that we can't wait on the government at the moment uh, because of the many issues that I that I've mentioned. Bit the, the issues that are directly as a result of colonialism, which are directly to the result of the economic crisis and the political crisis and corruption that we have in the in the current leadership. So the citizens realizing that they they need to to make space for them. So they came up with different forms. So you'd find this there's another COVID citizens response, which is more which is more like a coalition. Uh, of different organizations and networks that are working to look at the gaps in the response and try to provide uh, the necessary resources. So these are the Zimbabweans in the diaspora and the Zimbabwe in the country, and they'll be, they've been crowdfunding for this. We have organizations like, uh, I think it's called Radar Network, which have been making masks and distributing them for free. Then we also have a project called Kufema, which has been looking into creating PPE, creating ventilators uh, using 3D technologies and some of the innovations that people have come up to fill in the space. Then there are some who have been uh, dealing with the structural issues because this is these are just treating the symptoms, if I'm to say. But there are people who are working on the structural system and, and that needs multi-sectorial work and that cannot be done by individuals. So you'd find uh, the Center of Health Equity in Zimbabwe, which is the, the network that I am part of. What we are trying to do as part of the global campaign against racism, we are looking into how to raise awareness about the role of capitalism and colonialism to health professionals so that they are aware about these structural determinants of health when they are, because these are going to be the policy makers and these are going to be the, determine the programs that are going to affect those communities. Then you have platforms like UNU, which are discussing about how you can, how they can dismantle some of the entrenched colonial concept of spirituality. Because when you look at health from an indigenous knowledge perspective, then you'd notice that it's not only the physical health. It, 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 it's health is, is put in the context of the community. It's put in the context of the society. They talk about more of healing. So these are the people who are doing uh, work in that. Great, thank you. Uh, Farina, would you like to also comment? Yes. Um, so there's uh, groups such as Eh Info Shop, and they're again inspired by that Eh, and you'll hear that language again. That's that kinship, that central idea of what we owe to each other. And there are various mutual aids that have grown from this. That is beautiful for me too, that people realize it. This is not just a Navajo problem. It's not just a challenge for our people, but we have many allies, friends, family from beyond Navajo Nation who are giving of their time, their resources. And sometimes they don't even know, you know, they don't really fully understand everything. This is not just, you know, seeing Native Americans and, and the so-called colonized peoples, the defeated, subjugated peoples as only victims. That is depreciating too. But seeing that folks at IHS, all these different organizations, whether they're government, whether they are grassroots movements, such as the incredible work of Ethel Branch and the um, Navajo Hopi COVID relief and these various mutual aids that have organized, that they're all coming together. And that's why I'm talking to you now is I'm hoping um, through my work trying to launch uh, the Diné Doctor History Syllabus. That's where I list resources, for example, of, of various groups. And I'm learning every day. If people know of more, please let me know because I'm trying to archive this, share the word, spread the word about how we can come together. And through that spirit of eh, really support each other in overcoming this. 
Thank you so much, um, Farina. Thank you, Tina Shea, um, for helping us understand what's happening in this current moment in both of your environments, for sharing both the personal, the professional, and the political. And um, in the face of COVID and colonialism, you've really highlighted community solutions as key. And whether it's the innovation or the creativity at the very local level that fills the gaps that are, that are created by poor leadership, or it's about centering families as sources of strength. Um, I really appreciate you highlighting for us the kinds of resistance to colonial structures in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic that exist in the Navajo Nation and that exist in Zimbabwe. So thank you so much for that. I do want to ask um, in a, as our closing question, you know, we recognize that the colonial project everywhere that exists in the world is centuries old. And so in closing, I wonder if you'd like to share any words from your elders, from your ancestors that continue to uplift your communities in times of challenge. Um, whose words are motivating you in your own work? Whose words are motivating everyone in the midst of this pandemic? And maybe we will uh, start with Farina and close with Tina Shea. Um, a central concept for Dene is Sa Nagai Bike Hajon. Some translate it as walk in beauty, to live a long life in beauty. And when we say beauty, hajo, that's that idea, hajo, that was the concept I was trying to explain earlier and introducing of the balance, the harmony, and how we see all things and our interrelatedness. And that's something that um, in subtle ways my family through their example and, and different ways they've taught me and what um, wonderful people are our, our Danette intellectuals they've emphasized this so walk in beauty in every step think about how you can in this life journey of constant struggles with imbalance and disorder how do we seek that balance? How do we then orient ourselves and center ourselves? And eh, as I've been saying as well, that kinship is a big part of that. And knowing where we come from and, and having that hope to return to that balance and, and beauty with our family. Those have been great inspirations and something that um, is very important in this COVID-19 day and age facing the monster of COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you to my elders. Thank you to the many people, family and kin listening. And for all those um, facing these monsters to continue to walk in beauty in what you do. Thank you so much, Farina. Tina Shea. Yeah, thank you. And listening to Farina, I couldn't um, I couldn't help but appreciate the way um, in all this community plays a very important role. And one of the key phrases that gets me going is um, which slowly, loosely translates says one thing I cannot crush, cannot crush lies. Or another one, it says, uh, meaning that one person cannot sort of surround um, like an into this is a, <laughs> these are direct translations but when the true meaning 
of these statements are you, you need collective action for you to achieve a lot of things. Yeah, these statements for me are very important because they center they center communities. They put the communities at the center. They talk about unity. They talk about collective effort, which brings me to the idea of Ubuntu, which is a very powerful uh, element. And especially now uh, for us to successfully respond to COVID-19, we need collective effort from, from everyone in the community and everyone has a very important part to play. So that, that really keeps me going. And I'm seeing it again in, in some of the community-based responses that are and some of the organizing people are doing. In, in my community. Thank you. Thank you both so very much, Dr. Farina um, and Dr. Tina Shea. I really appreciate you sharing language of those who have come before you that are motivating your work at this time. With those words, um, we are so appreciative of your time and your experience, um, your energy, your thoughtfulness, and your activism. I hope all of you listening will join us in thanking Dr. Tina Shea and Dr. Farina we appreciate you greatly. Thank you both so much. I'd like to extend Zahara's compliments. This has been a great opening for our series. Thank you very much. As for you listeners, I hope you have enjoyed as well. And stay tuned for the next episode. We'll discuss localized health responses for COVID-19 and the flow of international health aid funds with a guest from Somalia. It's going to be great. If you want to know more about what we discussed today and maybe donate to some of the organizations and initiatives we have presented, you can find links in the description of this episode. That's all for today. Thank you. The Colonialism and COVID-19 series is brought to you by Conversations from the Leading Edge in partnership with Zahara Magnet and Lola Ademunmi. Conversations from the Leading Edge is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict and Complexity at the Earth Institute, Columbia University. Follow AC4 on Instagram and Facebook at AC4 Columbia to get constant updates on issues around sustainability, peace and conflict. Rachel Kirk is our communication supervisor. I am Mari Caselato, the producer of this podcast. This episode was recorded on July 10th, 2020. The data presented by the participants refer back to that moment and might have changed by now. The song you heard in the intro is The Healing Song, sung by the Navajo and the Sioux. For more, you can go to the link in the podcast description. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston. That's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.